This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. He's Nick McMahon and he's next. And now, from the legendary Studio B, so you're in Seattle with Gregor. A gentle touch with humanity means people are charmed by Nick's easygoing eagerness to experience things. He's played in a touring rock band, traveled like a seed on the wind through Southeast Asia, seemingly without much direction, happy to land where the current takes him, and most recently spent a season learning about the apple crops of Washington by getting his hands dirty for harvest. A guy that takes time to think about what it all means, not from the comfort of the couch, but with a stroll through the very places where we live and breathe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey. Hey, that sounds really nice. You're the, and warm and... You're the one who has to turn it up. I think that's you. funny. The guy who's played in rock bands, <laughs> ears blown out. <laughs> crank that up. Yeah. Did you guys ever get into uh, in-ears? Did you ever try get um, to that point? Our drummer was on in-ears the whole time because basically to hear what's going on as a drummer... It's got to be impossible, yeah. dude. It's, it's still impossible, but yeah. I mean, he would just have him cranked up. Like, he had a metronome going, so... Oh, yeah, so you got it. Over, oh. yeah. But that's really good, because you play way tighter with a metronome. and Yeah, I, I know people like argue against it, because they're like, uh, it takes away from the organic feel of it. I'm like, well... Also, you get to be a pro a lot faster when you... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that anyone in professional music is probably mostly using a metronome, unless you're like really against it and want to be organic that which, first rage against a machine album i remember trying to make an edit of one of the songs like a killing in the name of or something and you try and find a sample from the mid part and put it at the end to <laughs> get rid of a curse or something like that yeah. and they didn't play to a metronome oh geez yeah and i'm like wow that's crazy because that's such a huge it's such a prolific album and it's just like it sounds like they just kind of like did it yeah i i think if you're a, like an amazing musician maybe you know don't don't play to a metronome because you can just let your amazingness shine through you know i think about how um the monitors on stage are like so loud for some people and then like people switch to in-ears and that's gotta actually be worse for your hearing i'm, I'm sure thinking. it's worse for your hearing yeah does anyone wear like over ears does is there anyone out there that's like rocking <laughs> over ear headphones uh, you mean like since the guy in lincoln park was doing it in like the 90s oh yeah that's Remember right that? i yeah. forgot about that oh. that was his image yeah, the guitar like, player or something like that. Yeah. He had the smart guy, but his hearing's way better than most people's because the over ears are way better for you than the in ears. Yeah, yeah, probably. Anyway, we're we're now two minutes into monitor talk. That's that's fantastic. Um, Nick, I don't even remember how I met you. I guess you just started working as a street teamer here. I, I started with the mountain. Oh yeah, you got the look. You got the uh, maybe then you didn't. Well, but. I, I think I wanted to work for the end because I listened to the end, but the mountain was the only one that. Are you a was Seattle hiring. guy? I grew up in Linwood. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, you're from the... the area. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Born I, and raised? Yeah, yeah. I oh. went to Deck the Hall Ball in, like, in high school and saw Disturbed and <laughs> Sum 41 and, you know, all that 
<laughs> a shameful day. I don't know if I'm sorry to hear that or if I'm glad that you've been around for that long. That's. Uh, I mean, I thought it was awesome when I was in tenth grade. Yeah, but yeah, just start. Ooh, uh, I don't have the, I think I have a, a cut of it even. No, I don't. Damn it. Um, well, that's crazy. I had no idea that you had such roots here. Your folks live in Linwood? Yeah, my dad grew up in Lake Forest Park. Oh, wow. So, like, so, long time yeah. Seattle stuff. My grandpa grew up in Seattle. My grandpa went to UW. My uncle went to UW. I went to UW. Wow. You went to college. I didn't even know that part. I went to college. Yeah, wow. What'd you study? Uh, comparative history of ideas. <sighs> how's, that, how's that going? <laughs> That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you're that's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing with my life. Yeah, you're like traveling around comparing different ideas of history. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> that's. I mean, it's Actually, fascinating. Kind of. I just watched the movie Ip Man. My poor wife, when she listens to this, she's gonna be like, "Shut up about this movie already." It's a kung fu movie from China, sweet, starring Donnie Yen. And like at the end of it, spoiler alert. Okay, at the end of it, it goes. Then the Chinese people finally defeated the Japanese, bringing an end to World War II. And I was like, "Hold on." That's not. Wait, what's what's it called? Ip Man, IP. Okay, IP Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Great, great movie. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, maybe not factual, but well, I mean, but from their perspective, maybe it is, and that's kind of what that whole world is, right? It's about the. It's, that's very true. Yeah, your your pers- perspective. Perspective. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, uh, you know, wherever you are is different. Wherever you are. Yeah, I mean, and to and, them, like they got rid of the Japanese, and the war for them was over. Yeah. Never mind the fact that like America was unleashing hellish bombs on, on the, the Japanese that had to yeah. like curtail their behavior a little bit. But well, in in Vietnam they call the war the American War. Do they really? Yeah, they have an American War Museum, whereas we have like Vietnam War. So, whoa! And they're like the American invaders, and yeah, that's crazy. that's so. Uh, you've been to Vietnam, obviously, um, and not to everyone listening, probably not obviously, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, tell me, do they, what's the, what's their English speaking ability like there? Uh, it's not as, not as good as some other places in that part of the world, but. Because we, we went to Japan recently and they, they don't speak awesome English there, but they, they were good, man. They like, they really, if they came here, if Japanese people come here, <laughs> you're screwed because no one speaks any <laughs> Japanese here. The amount of English that they spoke was enough that I could get by by asking the right questions or whatever. Yeah. And I don't speak any Japanese. I learned 10 words and that was like how I got by. Yeah. Um, but there were some Canadian tourists there that were like, you know, Japan is the worst. These people are idiots. Uh, and oh. Vietnam, where we came from, their English was a hundred times better. I, I mean, after I, I'd been in Thailand and yeah. yeah, Thailand before I was in Vietnam. And so compared to Thailand, the English isn't as good. So but, I'm, I'm fascinated by this whole idea um, that you went just to the Far East. Yeah. Well, I actually, I mean, some people might, like close friends and stuff might have thought it was a little bit of a surprise or spontaneous trip, but it was kind of a long time coming for me. I studied that in college. Oh, yeah. I studied Buddhism and sure. uh, Southeast Asian anthropology. Really? And uh, yeah, like a girlfriend of mine at the time was half Filipino and she was like going to the Philippines with her mom. And I just remember being really interested in that area. Um, I took like a non-western architecture class at the UW and I yeah I loved it all and I was just like so amazed by how different their buildings and language and everything about their life was and it was like you know we have the same thing every day it's our life this is where we live and wanting to have a different view or see something that was not the way I lived was something that I'd been interested in in a long time and felt obligated to stay here because of my musical endeavors and okay. Well, let's go. Let's go chronologically a little bit here. Okay. Did you? When did you start? Uh, you were in Girl on Fire. 
I was in Girl on Fire. That but was like at a... the same time, I was going to the UW okay. and studying this stuff. Okay, so but when did Girl on Fire start? In 2007. Where were you? Like what? I started, where was I? Like Yeah, in your life, where were you? Like were you in college? Were you in yeah, high school? yeah, I was like a sophomore in college. Okay, so you started a rock band with some friends in school? Yeah, or? yeah. well, one of them I went to high school with, a couple of guys I've been working with, and um, yeah, it was like... I mean, I've been playing music since I was in high school, and I was like, let's start a rock band. Yeah, it's going to be great. And then our singer was crazy. I can't swear on this, can I? Sure, go ahead. I don't care. Okay, well, he was a crazy <laughs> and he was just like, I'm buying a van, I'm buying a trailer, I'm buying all the amps we need. He So he got himself in like 15 grand in debt, you know, or something like that. And But we had our rock band set up, ready to go. And he also worked at Robert Lang Studios. Yeah, sure. North, or he was interning there, slash kind of working... Um, that's a gr- that's a great studio. I've been through we got, there. We got a bunch of recording time, and we started playing like Showbox. We did like a Showbox show through like when you were selling your own tickets. You know, it's really, shit, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's fun. You know, yeah, of and, course. I mean, it's the hustle. I was, yeah, I was like 19 years old, and I was like, "This is great!" And he's like, "We're gonna do this. We're gonna be poor ash musicians, and we're gonna go tour the country." And but I, at the same time, I was like, "And I'm gonna go to college." Smart. So. Went to college, and then the same year I graduated college, we got signed to a record label. <sighs> Century Media, like that kind of metal label that's based out of Germany originally. Yeah. Some L.A. roots now. And, and yeah, I mean, that just kind of took off. Um, I mean, it was slow from the perspective of me, but from the perspective of, like, our f- fans and stuff. It was like we released a record, we went on a national tour, came back, recorded a record in L.A., went on, like, tours for a year and a half. That's so crazy. Did you get to leave the country for touring at all? Just Canada. Okay. But it kind of felt like a different country when you like arrive in Montreal and wake up and everyone's speaking French and they're bonjour, bonjour, and you're like, oh, and what? I was in New York last night. <laughs> and the the French Canadians are pricks, man. You go down one, like we went, we were there and go to the coffee shop one day and like bonjour, parlez-vous anglais, and they're like, yeah, duh. Uh, we're next door to U.S., dude. And I'm like, okay, fine. The next morning I come down, I'm like, good morning. And they're like, bonjour. <laughs> it's the same guy. And I'm like, you're a dick. <laughs> Stupid French Canadians. Well, well, these kids were pretty pumped that this like sure. band from the West Coast was there. And we of were course. just like, you know, young, ridiculous, let's get messed up. And Yeah, yeah, of course. You were there to party yeah. and like be rock stars. Yeah, yeah. So I think that perspective was a good time for us to, of course, to be yeah. doing that. And Montreal is lovely. Not to not to totally crap on Montreal. I think it's one of the best cities I've been to. I, w- I was there for about five hours. So okay. <laughs> yeah, you probably, you definitely saw more than me. But you stopped, played, and then kept going? We had to be in Toronto the next day and I think we like left that night and yeah. But is this still touring in like a van? Is this still the yeah, van that your yeah, buddy yeah. bought? It, it was van and van and trailer style. Oh my god! That's, did you ever have any problems with people stealing your stuff? I know it's a huge problem for um, bands. Not too much. Uh, in New York, some people some people stole like a uh, pedal, but that wasn't out of the trailer. We never had anyone break into our trailer. Like, we had like the special locks that weren't that easy, and we were usually pretty careful about trying to park in safer spots. And yeah, yeah, it, it was all it was all right. I think you know. One time early in the early days, a bass guitar was missing, and you know, one time in the middle days, um, a bass guitar was found. <laughs> now, tell, what do your parents think of you, like uh, running around the country in a rock and roll band? They're super supportive. On. Yeah, yeah, they're like, "That's that's awesome." You know, this is a good time in your life to try to do this if it's something you're enjoying doing. And how do they feel about you uh, going to school? 
Well, they were really pushing for me to go to school, especially okay. my mom, you know, was like, go to college, go to college. Yeah. And like when I got into the UW, she probably would have been happy if I did like accounting or business and <laughs> or chemistry or something. And I was, <laughs> I actually was really into science in high school, um, math and science. I was always really did well on those. Um, and then in, in like my freshman year in college, I took an English class that I actually really enjoyed. One of the first times I enjoyed an English class and in the UW, I started doing kind of, I guess, philosophy, cultural studies and ended up doing, well, it's called CHID, but Comparative History of Ideas, which is sort of identity culture studies. And yeah. That was a lot more writing and not very much mathematics, but... It's fascinating. This isn't about me, but I'm going to make it for a second. We'll just take a quick turn. Yeah. Um, I uh, went to the University of Arizona, and um, I was offered, uh, or I was told I was in a media arts program, and media arts to me was like sound and TV and movies and all that. And it turns out at the University of Arizona for your first year or maybe first three semesters, it's only film. And I really had no desire to do film. I'm not a film guy, like dumb movies with stupid punchlines. It's just like what I'm into. I'm just yeah. thinking like really <laughs> low base dude movies, you know? Um, and so I needed, I didn't know where to go from there and I was getting bad grades. I didn't know where to turn. And I turned to uh, Southeast Asian studies. Oh, wow. And got like super into the identities of the Far East. And I uh, spent a little more than a year in this department taking these classes and like learning about just a, a whole other mindset of the world. Like yeah. we're so, we think of ourselves as like dominant and the prevailing culture, but like we're seriously outnumbered by the yeah. rest of the, by the rest of the planet. Yeah, yeah. And it was fascinating to get a little bit of perspective that way. And I, like you just, you know, I went to Japan. That's the first time I've left the country other than Canada or Mexico mm-hmm. and to see a difference and like lit up and like got to experience what that actually is. Cause it's very similar. The Japanese are very similar to Americans, but the way they get there is different and it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. That's interesting. That's a That's cool great. parallel that like, uh, I yeah. never, I never knew that you had like set up a background. My parents, very disappointed in me for doing that. <laughs> they already wanted me to be a doctor or a businessman or an engineer or something like that. And I was there like taking, you know, Buddhism practice in culture or something like that as a class. And they're like, oh, God. Yeah, I, I think I got, I mean, I don't know whether I got lucky or what, but I'm, my dad was into meditation and yoga a little bit when he was in his 20s and yeah. into like, I don't know, just healthness, well-being, yeah. health, well-beingness. Healthness, I like healthness. that. No, no, yeah, I'm, let's, I'm, let's go with it. It's big, bigly. Coin awesome. that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I was always really a lot of what I did in college was learning about ways to think about things and explain things, and so I think that helped in explaining things to them. Yeah. It's like, all right, you know, this is actually beneficial to me because it's helping me have a broader view and understanding of the world and people, and whether or not I'm going to go and get a job in a dentist office or yeah. you know a, a business building, <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to understand people and I'll be able to be fine anywhere I am in the world and work with people. What do they do? Um, my dad was, or did HVAC. Yeah, okay. My mom was a... Was he an engineer? Like a, uh, just like HVAC repair cool. and um, installation. Working and, man. And yeah, and, and so the, he's been working for the city of Bellevue doing like building management. Yeah, cool. Um, and um, my mom was working as a transcriber, medical transcriber, which probably isn't a job that exists anymore because everyone just Robots. Talks. Yeah, robots. <laughs> robots control us. And school teacher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. so just like humble, modest background. Yeah. yeah. Educated. Yeah. Interesting. That's so fascinating. Um. So then you got an opportunity to play in a band and just like cruise around and see, like, be an artist for a while. Yeah. So, so of course I wasn't gonna. I actually 
maybe not, of course, because I had a friend that was in the band, and as we were getting signed, he quit the band. He was just like, this isn't for me. I don't want to be more invested into this. And we're like, are you crazy? Like, we're getting signed to a label. We're going to get someone to pay for us to go into a recording studio, which is like every 22-year-old rock band kid's dream, or any age for that matter, is like someone's going to pay for you to go record your music. Yeah. And that was exciting. And Do you own that music now? No, we... They own the stuff that they paid for. We're, Do you get to own it at debt. some point? Mm, maybe I don't. I don't know. It, Do you care? It, it, no, I don't really care. Yeah. It was like the experience that we had was really great, and being able to record in some really cool studios with some really cool people and tour around the country was the experience that I got out of it. Yeah. I, mm, I guess I haven't thought about it a whole lot lately. Yeah. Just because it was sort. It was sort of like a. I was really ready to be done with it when I got out of it. So it was like, oh, I'm done. Well, then yeah. a couple rap questions then for that. Like, do you end up now being responsible for the money that they loaned you? Are you like... Well, that that was... So that was a big thing. So, the, you know, they would send us, you know, this is how much you owe the record label, which is, it was like 80 grand. <sighs> and, and we're like, well, that's how much Girl on Fire, the LLC band owes the label. Who was smart enough to do that? Well, we'd... You figure that you have to work with lawyers and stuff when yeah. we were signed for four years. Okay. So, you know, and we had two different contracts between like a subsidiary label and the yeah. actual label and um, a management contracts that changed a couple times. And so you have to get a lawyer. Yeah. And like a kind of it's an expense that kind of sucks. And it used to be, I think, that la- uh, labels would actually pay for the lawyers for the band because they you know, they were like, you know, let's not screw our bands over. But then that all changed in the 90s and stuff when the music industry was like really banking on CDs and yeah um yeah so we we just were like we have to make sure that we aren't personally indebted, right, right. indebted to them so, so which it was fine they were like yeah of course you know and LLCs in our country are viewed and I think limited mostly, liability corporation or something yeah, like that yeah, yeah. They're, they're viewed as uh, almost as a person you know they can be taken to court they can be sued you can owe money, they can pay money as separate but, from any individual. But you're not, but yeah, you're not personally on the hook for that money, just the idea of Right, the Girl idea of Girl on Fire. So if you like fired the band back up and started doing stuff, that money would have to go to that label? Certain parts of the money, like money that you make from the show, oh make from merch wouldn't have to, but then money you make from, you know, like online sales and... Uh, probably like trackable money would have to. Oh my god, that's so crazy, dude! But eighty yeah. grand? Yeah, it's like eighty grand. So I mean, the label it's, just eats that, right? <clears throat> yeah, but you know, then they have some other band that blows up or you know makes some money and yeah, it's calculated know. risk here. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I could talk for hours about the the label situation and the industry of that of that nature, but. It seems a little <laughs> counterproductive, I guess. <laughs> counterproductive, counterproductive. Well, when that comes to an end, like, how do you feel about, like, forgive me, this is not a nice question to ask, okay? But how do you feel about being another band that didn't make it? You had four years where you were taken care of, but you, but it didn't pan out where you're a big mega star touring, you know, the world or whatever. Right, right. Well, y- you know, I think with every time this kind of thing happens it's never just like one person you know we feel a lot of the responsibility was mishandled by the label and by management Mm -hmm. but they probably would say that a lot of the responsibility was mishandled by us you know and sure when i was when we were doing 
recording and touring and stuff like it was it was great but you know in hindsight I can be like wow every time I was on a break I should have been taking guitar lessons I should have been taking vocal lessons I should have been stepping up and trying to promote myself and promote my band harder instead of being like I'm home now for two weeks I'm gonna party with my friends and like see my family and but how much is that part of it you know like how much of your identity as a musician relies on your ability to socialize with like you can't lock yourself in a vacuum right but I could have tried harder and everyone could have tried harder and I'm you know I don't know if anyone in my band will actually listen to this or hear this but I'm sending it to all of them oh (laughs) um but yeah that you know like if we had all been like every day that we're off, we're spending an hour, you know, practicing our instrument and we're going to be professional musicians. And this is what we're going to do with our lives. Like it was like, Hey, this is what we're going to do with our lives. But it's a lot more fun to just like screw around and enjoy ourselves, which is what we did. And that's part of partly awesome to go through that experience, just enjoying yourself and kind of going with the flow and be like, all right, we're on this tour or we're on this tour and that's great. And, yeah, I mean, what kind of bad blood exists within Girl on Fire since this, uh, since the, since the demise? I, I mean, I like all the guys still. I see them all. Um, cool. A, a big reason why I left the band um, was like my really good friend was going to have a baby yeah. with his girlfriend, and so he was like, "I'm, I'm out." Um, and I kind of felt like I was doing a lot of the management stuff and trying to get the music together and trying to make it happen, and everyone else sort of was like let's smoke weed <laughs> and i was like it's legal now nick we can now we can do it for real and i was like that's fine like let's smoke weed but i don't want to feel like i'm doing all this and i was feeling less and less engaged in it and there was a couple you know other things that happened sure where i just it's I, a lot of weight to carry man you know yeah i just i just was kind of over it yeah. basically and i was like i don't want to be running this whole project and not feel like you guys are as into it as i am and i don't feel into it <laughs> so how, how does it feel to be away from it now uh, what a couple of years later well let's see it was a year in september our last sure. show um and like our last couple shows were really fun the last tour we went on was last in um summer of 2015 and that was like one of the most fun i'd had on tour in a couple of years um but yeah, I mean, you, def- you definitely miss playing playing music in front of people, which yeah. is something I could do again, and I probably will do it again at some point. And do you have enough clout? Do you think that like if you wanted to start a band, you think people would be like, "Oh yeah, that's the guy from Girl on Fire"? Uh, I don't know. That's I mean, a hard question. I'm sorry, but I, I mean, yeah, you know, like we definitely had people that were following us and whatever. Facebook numbers count for if anything these days. Yeah, your buddy Nicholas, man, he's got like a gazillion Twitter followers and right, right, and you can follow a lot of people and engage them, and that builds up its own momentum for better or for worse. And how engaged those people are, you know, it's it's hard to say. You know, I think I honestly think to start a band from my perspective and from my level of well knownness. Yeah. I'd have to, you know, really push it. I have to do like local shows and yeah. do free stuff and pass stuff out and try to get on every radio station that I can and, you know, do the groundwork and the grunt work, which is something that I've thought about is like, I know what it would take probably to get going and, you know, to get to, get to the the next level and yeah. the next level. And, you know, it's always it's always about with sort of anything in life. It's always about like those levels that you go through. Not not necessarily like a video game, but <laughs> it's not like Donkey Kong levels, but it's sort of like you you see where you are and you see other people around you and you see this person that's, you know, a little bit further. They're may, maybe making money doing it or maybe they're just getting the better shows 
or maybe they're getting that tour or that label or whoever and you, you like what does it take to get to what they're doing and and I don't know I mean it's something you didn't I didn't really realize as when we were doing the band you know you kind of you kind of see it but then afterwards when you look back you're like ah oh, that's what it would take yeah to be able to stand back is nice I guess to so, be able to perspective so I think I have more perspective now yeah. but whether I am motivated in that direction is something I'm still I'm still kind of like I don't know I mean I've I like making music I've been making music my whole life basically I, are you still making music now? Are you doing anything? Yeah, yeah, I'm recording my own stuff. And I'm enjoying it, and it's different than Girl on Fire, and a lot different. But I've always made like my own kind of music. I just never really. It was it was more of just like an artistic release for me. Sure. Like some people like to go home and paint. I like to go home and make songs. Who was the songwriter in that band? Um, it was collective for sure. Um, our singer did a lot of the vocals, and and I did a lot of like the organization kind of like production i guess you could say you know really into like pro tools editing oh, cool. making sounds um and and learned a lot going to studios so when you're in the studio with a producer you know they're also influencing it and influencing the writing and the sound of the music so a couple different producers influenced us and um, we spent some time in la doing writing with like other bands and some people that the label that we were working with had contacts with um yeah, you don't. I don't think that most people realize when you get to that level where you're doing this professionally how there's a lot of other hands that get involved at some point. It's not just not everyone can be Fugazi and just lock themselves in a practice studio five hours a day for five days a week and take right. it as a job where they're writing music themselves without outsiders being in right, there. Right. There's a huge songwriting community in L.A. and in Nashville and stuff, and you can borrow people's talents to help you find the way to make that part a little bit better or a yeah. little catchier or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And. And with that, it's it is similar. You know, it's sort of like I don't know what is what is it? like shooting fish in a bucket. Or is that is in that a barrel, phrase yeah. in a barrel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like these songwriters write a song every day for a whole year, and they do this for years and years and years, and they hope you you know maybe one song a year gets picked up. How crazy it with Alan Thick dying like that? He wrote like the Different Strokes song and the and the Family Ties or the excuse me Facts of Life song yeah. and like the original Wheel of Fortune song, and it's like how many other things did he write that never like made it? That people, yeah, yeah, or that oh yeah, that we, heard, or that people that, we don't, that know. don't know that he wrote, yeah. yeah, you know, like ghostwriters and stuff are a big thing. I mean, that's crazy. It's yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the industry's obviously grown a lot and do you stay motivated like can you like do you push yourself to make stuff or do you find yourself i well i've after like listening to music you know like growing up you listen to songs and a song is you know a two to four minute piece of music usually with yeah. layers of instruments and frequently most likely vocals and so when i started making music it's like i'm making songs you know i'm not just gonna play guitar for half an hour and record that and be like oh that's sweet half an hour of recorded guitar <laughs> you know it's like and i mean maybe somebody would like to do that and i'm sure somebody does that but for me i've always wanted to like make make that song or make the product and so <laughs> yeah uh i i guess like i start a lot of songs or music parts or just sometimes i'll be mm, enjoying myself playing yeah. some drum sounds not playing real drums fake drums yeah and guitar and you know you might have like 20 starts and then you have one that you're like oh this is really cool and you kind of just follow it and see where it goes um and then it might become you know like an actual song and so yeah i guess you know i, I if if i feel inspired then i get motivated and then i almost can't you know stop i can't just be like oh i got like so close to finishing it and then i'm not gonna do anything anymore i want to finish it so. so are you good about finishing so 
sort of. Yeah, I mean, it comes and goes. You know, sometimes I'll be really motivated for a week and I'll get a lot done. And lately, I've, yeah, I've, I have a couple, I guess I would say, songs that I'm pretty close to finishing that I'm more motivated on than I've been in a while. And, you know, like when I was in the band, it was more about finishing songs for the band. So I didn't really do my own stuff to that extent. And so that's kind of like nice for me to get back into. You ever go back and hear one of your old songs and still think like, ah, oh, we could have changed it to be like this? Oh yeah, for sure. Or or you go back and you hear your old song and you're like, ah, oh, man, if we had put that at the right place at the right time, it would have been like it would have been good. You know, people <laughs> would have been listening to it, people would have been into it cuz you hear other songs and you're like, that song's not as good as our song. <laughs> I'm biased, I'm probably biased. So you, you hang it up now it was a year ago or whatever and then you you're a surprise to some, but not to anyone who really knew you that you decide that you're going it's a long time in the a long time coming. You're just going to pack up and leave, man. Yeah. Where, like, okay, first of all, where did you go first? How did you get there? And how long did it take you to set the whole thing up to get out of town? I booked my ticket like a week and a half before I left. Okay. And <laughs> that was partly because I was going through uh, a traffic court situation, <laughs> which got cleared up and, you know, all good. And like the day after, or maybe the day of, I got home and booked my ticket because I knew I didn't have to go back to any more traffic court. Oh, that's cool. Stuff. And Where'd you go first? Thailand. So you decided, I'm going to go to Thailand. I remember talking to you. I was like, when are you coming back? You're like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I had, okay. So I have a good friend that I've known since I was like a teenager. And um, when he was 17, he moved to Thailand and worked as a dive instructor for about a year. Wow. And with like a friend that had a business that he knew. I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and then he came back and you know, four or five years later, went back to Thailand and worked again for, you know, like six months and traveled around Asia. So he, he was going to Thailand with his girlfriend for three weeks in that a year ago in December. And, uh, yeah, I was like, I should go with you. And he was like, yeah, dude, meet me there. And so I met him there and oh, cool. I, I was on and off with, like, I meet up with him and his girlfriend for a while and then I'd go off and do my own thing and they kind of go do a couple's thing, but it was, it was really fun. I mean, so yeah, so I went to Thailand, flew into Bangkok um, that's a crazy place. Why? But it's just, I mean, coming my first time in a foreign, like third world type country or, I mean, they're pretty developed, especially in Bangkok. It doesn't really seem third world-ish in the sense of some places that I've seen now, but it's just like the traffic's crazy. The, the language is different. They're driving on the other side of the road. Yeah, it's the weirdest. I mean, coming, coming from Seattle and drive or just even touring around America, it's, very different but i think my touring experience has helped me a lot with my traveling experiences what did you bring with you uh like just being able to go with it and not being stressed when what did your... you physically bring with you physically i yeah. thought you meant like you know what, what, psychologically. what from america did you what, <laughs> what from america like what emotional baggage <laughs> did you bring with you that's fair too though man i guess i shouldn't cut you off yeah uh, i mean yeah i brought i brought a just a big backpack full of clothes and that's about it. I brought too many shoes, too many clothes, but I would I'd pack differently now. <laughs> I mean, you would not, you'd have no way of knowing that though, right? But yeah. Uh, so you just have a pack. You're just like your backpack. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. And you could stay for a month or six. Or... You, can, you can stay for one month in Thailand um, yeah. before you have to either reapply for a visa or do something to stay longer. Or you can leave and come back in. And um, yeah, so I was gonna just travel around with him for three weeks, and then I had a. Uh, this Australian girlfriend uh, that she was meeting me in uh, Thailand after he left, like just after New Year's. So 
um, I kind of had, you know, like... Wait, when did you get there? You got there, like, right before Christmas or yeah, something? Yeah, I got there, like, I got there, like, December 10th. Okay. Um, and then, so I was going to travel with him for three weeks, and then he was f- going to fly home, and then, like, a week after he flew home, she was going to meet me in Thailand, and we were going to travel for five weeks. So that's, you know, like, two over two months now of planning. Not really planned, but sort of, like, loose plans to go around Thailand, and then um, we wanted, once she came, we wanted to kind of travel around like Vietnam and Cambodia, Laos, and see those parts because, uh, I mean, five weeks is a lot of time, but another one of those things, when you look back, you could, with unlimited time or without necessarily a time limit for me, I guess it wasn't necessarily unlimited, but I didn't have a specific return date. Um, I I probably wouldn't have, it's better to just not have a plan and just kind of like go to a place and like find kind of what it of whatever it is that you're looking for until you're ready to go to the next place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with her, um, once once we were traveling together, we were like, "All right, let's go to the next place. Let's go to the next place." We didn't stay in a place for more than like one or two days for like three weeks straight, which is gets really exhausting. Yeah, right. And kind of if, for me, not having to leave, I was sort of sort of like, "Oh, I want to stay here." And she's like, "But we got to go here." And I'm like, "Oh, but like, I guess I can come back and." Well, how did you make this all? Like, did you just have a gazillion dollars saved up, ready to go, or did you just? Well, it's, it's pretty cheap. I mean, I feel like you could do about a thousand dollars a month, wow. and that includes like food, accommodation, and travel expenses. Did you have enough money to just get home, just like saved up or something? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd saved up money for a while, and like my parents were supportive, and they're like, "If like if you run into you know if you get, if you're in jail, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let us know." And yeah. you know, it's good to stay out of jail, definitely. Yeah. Um, I didn't really, I didn't have to bribe anyone, but that's not, not necessarily uncommon that like the police are kind of posted up in places and you're driving by and they don't really care if you're going fast, but they'll just stop everyone and be like, you just give them some money <laughs> and then it's cool. And it's just like totally normal, but it's usually a lot, you know, it's like five equivalent of maybe like $5 US or something. Yeah. Whereas here it's like, if you're speeding and you get a ticket, it's like, you know, a hundred to $200 US. So there's some weird like similarities because the police here are looking for people breaking the law, whereas the police there are just sort of looking for people to give them money. <laughs> but wow, it's, so weird. It's, it's it's like same but different, you know. Now you weren't just gone for two months, though, man, right? You were well, gone yeah. For so it. I was gone for seven months. Yeah, and so <laughs> and you went there knowing that for two months you'd be gone. Yeah, I was like, I'll be gone for two months. Maybe I'll travel on my own for a month and be ready to come home. But I want to at least have the option to stay as long as I want. Um, I had a family wedding, which I had missed some of that kind of family stuff when I was on tour in the band. And I was like, this isn't a good enough excuse, just me doing my own my own thing to miss that stuff. So I was like, I'll be home by July at the latest, which I was home in July. And I was like, are you sure I have to come home? And I was like, I want it. Like I was, you know, having this little discussion with myself where I was like, I could I could mentally stay and continue to do this sort of traveling. But how long did it take before? I don't how do you say this? Before you found a gear that was like, before you had like left your Seattle self behind a little bit and became traveling through Asia, Nick. Mm, that's a good one. Um, I, th- I think when you're traveling with other people, you're kind of distracted. You aren't really like just in yourself and in your experience of traveling, you're mm-hmm. kind of like sharing that experience and, you know, making compromises. Um, and so, especially when you're with people that are just there for a shorter period of time, um, 
And so I think I had potential to get to that gear sooner. Uh, maybe about the time my friends were leaving, I was like, I'm ready to do this. And then I was like, this girl's coming. And I was excited, but then part of me was a little like, but now I have to, you know, travel on her time, fr- time frame a little bit. You know, I have to make a compromise, which it's, it wasn't necessarily the best situation. But after she left, it took me a little while because you go through this like, emotional adjustment of traveling by yourself and you feel kind of like you aren't experiencing these things with another person anymore. Sure. And you're always with people. You're always experiencing things with people, but you know, a person that you're close or really intimate with that you suddenly don't have traveling with you every day. It's like part of it was a relief because I'm like free. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to, you know, go to the next city. But the part of me was like, but I'm by myself. And so it was, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, I think, when I got into Vietnam a second time, so that was probably about a month after she left, before I was really like, I got this. This is awesome. I'm, I can do this as long as I can. Did you have to, is there an amount of having to learn to trust your instincts when you're by yourself and not <laughs> let yourself be crazy and like talk yourself out of things? I mean, I'm I'm pretty good at going with stuff. And I don't know what, like, I've, I think that as much as I think of myself as really rational and like careful, I'm like kind of reckless and like maybe slightly self-destructive at times. Um, and what a combo, you know, I might blame that on like my musical career or, um, you know, drugs, but, (laughs) uh, yeah, I I think that there was a couple times where I got myself in places or situations where I was like, I don't feel safe or, you know, I might get my stuff stolen or in trouble sort of. Um, but I, yeah, I guess trusting your instinct it becomes something that's really important. How, you kind of know your, like when you go through these experiences, you definitely kind of get to know your instinct better, which is, it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, it's always there. You know, you're always, everything you do throughout any day, you're thinking, should I do this? Should I, should I not do this? Or whatever basic thing. But then when you're in these other places where people don't speak your language and there's no one there to like, be like, hey, it's okay. Like, you're fine. You kind of have to be okay with yourself. Well, I can only imagine that, you know, we get, it's another, it's not a sense like sight or touch or something like that, but the idea that you're just kind of comfy and you can go, you know, what's safe and not safe or here in the Seattle area, like yeah. for the most part, you you know, you can still run across anomalies or whatever, but your instinct, your, your gut doesn't have to be as finely tuned here because you can kind of autopilot around. Yeah. I can only imagine when the, <laughs> when everything is a variable that you're not familiar with that your instinct has to like sharpen a little yeah yeah it's it's like you're sharp and you're like on it and you're kind of paying attention and making sure your stuff's safe and then you kind of get comfortable and you start autopiloting and then something happens and you're like okay i can't you know i can't autopilot and wow um it kind of shocks you sometimes like there is there was a couple things that happened, which I don't know whether we want to get into yeah, story yeah, yeah. time now or yeah, yeah, sure. Like I, I th- I'm fascinated by the concept of a guy who like journeys on kind of like a solo adventure. The part where you're with your friends, I'm actually kind of surprised by. I like the idea of just being lost with yeah. You have purpose. You're like existing, but like you just have to become part of the sea of other people. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. like to take people that are here for granted, where they might not feel comfortable being amongst. Um, just white Seattle or whatever it is. Like, if you're here visiting by yourself and you don't know where you're going, that's got to be daunting to be here. I can only imagine the opposite way. Right, right. How f- how fantastic it must be to d- develop character and stuff. So I, I like the idea of the specific stories, but I'm also upset. I like the concept of your your of your mind being there. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
it, it's really exciting, you know, like you get to a city and you don't know a single person or where you're going or what you're going to do. And, you know, you go to like a, a soup shop and you sit there and eat some soup and you look on, you know, the Internet or the book or something. And, you know, I think everyone has different things that they're looking for while yeah. traveling. And so I think that's an important thing to have in mind is like, what are you looking for? And you run into travelers who... And, you know, I think they maybe knew what they're looking for at one point, but kind of lost what they're looking for. And they seem kind of like these lost people that are just in a city for like a month or something and they don't really do much. And yeah. they're like, seem kind of depressed. And you're like, whoa, this is kind of weird. Like you're over in Asia and you can do anything you want and you have enough money and you don't do anything. And they aren't doing anything. It's just, just like they... It's even decision paralysis or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Like, well, I, don't, I have all these options. I don't know what to do. Right, right. And And so for me, I definitely wasn't, just looking for like the tourist things and like well, okay I, I did... well here's a question what were you looking for right right so developing from my early days in college through my time traveling as a band and you guys time traveled that's time, crazy time traveling yes time traveling uh, i mean you go to some places in the country and you feel like you've time traveled <laughs> uh there was a town in texas that was like mostly an immigrant town and they had like these Ethiopian restaurants and no one in the restaurant spoke English. And I was like, where are we? And it was this weird little town in Texas. And that sounds delicious. I don't, remember. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. If, if you went in there, you'd, you'd be like, what the hell is this place? I mean, it was just like <laughs> one of those like pop-up tables and bare walls and like peeling, peeling, you know, wall stuff. And, Ugh. and there was like a guy in the back and they're like, Oh, what do you want? And whatever. And we're like, um, we're just actually going to go look for the pizza place. Yeah. Like pizza. Do you you serve that? No. Okay. Bye. And then he's like, I can cook some rice. And we're like, I don't know. It's just, (laughs) that was, you know, so, so even traveling around the U S you get these kind of weird experiences. And so obviously every day you're traveling in Asia, you get those kind of experiences and they, they become mundane, you know, and there's points where I was traveling where I was like, uh, I'm almost ready to go home. But then I don't know, like, I guess you go to a new place and new things come up and you kind of. Um, okay, so what were you looking for? Right, right. So I, I was looking to ha- like um, be around people that weren't influenced or weren't westernized people and didn't necessarily have that tourist West, um, influence because the tourist influence is a very strong influence, especially in Thailand. Sure. And those um, the Thai people are you know really awesome and really friendly, but they seem very much like they're catering towards the Western traveler. Yeah, which they've been doing you know, built up over 20 or 30 years or something. You know, it's been a gradual thing. Um, but like in, and it's the same in Vietnam um, and Cambodia and those, and lots of those areas, but there's, you know, pockets where it hasn't changed and where you can, you know, take a bike or like they, everyone just drives mopeds everywhere. Yeah. And so and just like moped out into some little town and then you can like see how people are really living there. And, and, and also I think, um, like on a deeper level, I was really wanting to see a culture that wasn't driven as much by capitalism and consumerism. Um, and I remember before I left, I had been reading a lot of like books that, you know, like 1984 and mm-hmm. Brave New World and um, kind of interested in just concepts that are different than what our kind of country is doing. I don't know whether we were founded on it or what you know and 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 whether it's this idea that you know everyone is an individual that has to go out there and make it in the world and lots of these people you know it's just it's not about going out and being the individual it's about you know being responsible for your family and your community and 
you know, that was something that I, I felt kind of interested in just kind of seeing a different perspective. How much do you see the internet having an effect on these places? Well, it's definitely changing. And everyone's, not everyone, but lots of people are starting to get smartphones and, you know, they can go on their smartphone and watch a YouTube video of whatever crazy stuff's happening in America. And, you know, a lot of people really look at America as a influential country, which I guess... Of course. Um, whether we're directly influencing them or, like, indirectly influencing them... Well, we make all the media. We're, we're in, Yeah, we are, like, a media monster, you know? And yeah. The media is a huge influencer of people. And, and yeah... You, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of lost my train of thought. No, I got you, man. It's um, I'm fascinated by the idea that like you can have little pockets. You can take a moped out to a village, and see what a village looks like. Meanwhile, we're at home, all tending to think of ourselves as like, what am I going to do for myself? You were saying to advance myself is a very like I can see everything that's happening in the world on the internet, and I can do that too better. Yeah. Rather than yeah. understanding like what it is to walk out the, you have to go outside and there's your village, and you have to do your part to keep the culture moving. Yeah. yeah. We're like turning like inward towards our screens, and so I wonder if without the major influence of the internet, if those places are st- if they like thrive as a culture because they aren't being ruined by. <laughs> the media coming from the West. Yeah, so there's some that are, you know, thriving from the culture, but there's a lot of them that are being written by the West. Yeah, that's it's, it's. I mean, it's... Okay, the, this, um, I worked on this farm in Cambodia that is owned by this French guy who's lived there for, like, 15 years, and he's young, like, in his, like, 38 or something, and he has a couple kids with a Cambodian woman, and um, it's, like, an organic, um, environmentally friendly, self-sustaining farm. It's, they call it, some cool words they drop are permaculture. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Which I don't exactly know the complete definition of that, but I think I think you know they're trying to they're trying to grow plants that grow there naturally, um, yeah. without necessarily just making a single crop. You know they're trying to have pineapples and bananas and rice and. Um, other more foreign sounding plants, which I can't remember all their names. Sure, sure, of course. Um, and you know, so I was on this farm for three weeks, and it was. It was pretty amazing. Permaculture literally is what you said, the development of agriculture ecosystems intended to be sustainable and self-sufficient. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and Cambodia is in a really tough place right now because like 70% of their forest has been cut down. To make palm oil? Um, Well, they aren't doing huge palm oil. They're mostly rice. Palm oil is mostly in Malaysia and those more like equatorial areas. Cambodia is a little bit more subtropic. Yeah, forgive me. I don't know my geography well enough of the region. No worries. No worries. Um, And... But you can like there's this video on on YouTube where you can actually see um, I, I don't know whether it's like a live video, but they're showing like the forest deforestation happen, and so it shows all this green forest like receding, and this is like a 20 year period of time, and so with less forest comes like the whole environmental thing. If you've ever seen that awesome video about the wolves coming back to Yellowstone, it's just like that with the forest going, the animals go. Without the animals in the forest, it like literally affects the climate. You know. Yeah, I mean like, the ecosystem changes because eco- it has to support changes. something different. Yeah, and this might be a little political, but I think that the term um, climate change or global warming is almost you know it's not quite there. What really is happening is environmental change. You know, and it's not just the temperature changing; it's the environment. It's like the ground and the rivers and all of that stuff, which makes a huge difference to the climate. Well, and- a big a big concern for the world is the like the. Unfortunately, again, I'm not here to 
talk anyone into anything, but like, unfortunately, when you talk about climate change, like something that people don't discuss is like desertification, right? Where, exactly. Where cattle have stomped out or have taken a grassland and made it flat and the grass doesn't grow anymore and it becomes all exposed to topsoil, which then goes up into the, uh, up into the jet stream, which then redistributes somewhere else and you expand these deserts. Yeah. That's not yeah. scientific. What I just said, that's just a general, really poorly painted picture. Yeah. Um, but it's that type of thing where it's not about, there's only about, there's too much carbon in the air or whatever. It's about like, we're not taking care of the space that we have. Uh, like when the dust bowl happened because they weren't rotating the crops enough and a drought came and boom, gone. Right. Right. Like these types of things. Right. It's, it's complete. It's a complete environmental thing and more than just the temperature. You how, know? how much was the government like turning their eye, a blind eye to the this? government's like doing this. There's people that are against Oof. this that, you know, are considered whatever rebels or bad guys. And, you know, they're, if they get caught, they're going to get arrested and they're, but it's a lot of, um, I think Chinese, um, what they were saying, the locals were saying is Chinese are coming down and cutting these trees down because they're worth a lot because they're like old growth jungle trees. And um, so a lot of the forests are gone. And so that's a big change that's happened in Cambodia over the last 20, 30 years. And also um, they kind of, mm, we've developed, you know, consumerism and capitalism over like a hundred year period. And yeah. it's like capitalism hit them. And that's like, everyone wants a phone. Everyone wants this. Everyone wants a TV in the last like 20 years. So trying to make that adjustment cult adjustment culturally is very difficult. And it's like, if your parents grew up one way, the kid's completely different. You know, the kid wants to live like an American kid. Yeah. Whereas the parents grew up as like small communities with like farmers and they're living. But now kids can see, they have a portal into right, right. what and, the rest and, of the world looks like. And so like. you can't really say like they, you know, they deserve to have, you know, whatever we have, you know, it's, you can't really say you can't have this because it's going to be bad for the world and bad for your culture. Right. So, I mean, globalization's happening. You can't stop it. It's just part of part of globalization. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, the connection of information for all of us. Right. That's right. Communi yeah. So I feel like, you know, part of what I what I was, what you see is that things are changing and you really can see that this change is happening, especially when you're like there and there's these kids on the street that are local that are on their phone. And then there's like these really poor people that can't ever afford a phone or. I can only imagine how crazy India is right now too, because of the the how rapidly the education, job force, and, and manufacturing has sprung up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, compared to the overwhelming poverty that mm -hmm, happens mm -hmm. there. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely in general like there's bigger gaps created, but you know, hopefully that as these people develop a more of a upper class and middle class develop, they'll try to take the lower class with them. And I'm going to say if. <laughs> Yeah. Rather than when, well, <laughs> yeah. If a middle class develops, then hopefully that becomes a. But there is a middle class developing in, um, a large middle class in Thailand and Malaysia and China, which seems to be growing as a middle class. Yeah. You know, people that, um, are able to maybe go to school instead of start working at thirteen. You know. Well, what were you surprised by, like, when you got there? That, like, what, what, what do you walk away from? I'll give you an example. I got to Japan and expected it to be all robots and lasers and lights and everything. <laughs> and what I found was it was a bunch of sad people who don't talk to each other. They walk around like in, in solitude and they like, so as uh, my perception, so as not to bring shame on themselves by doing something impolite in public. Okay. And so you have like a bunch of people that don't 
like they don't gawk at the weird American guy walking around being giant and, and wowed by this culture. They like keep to themselves, and so it's. Yeah. I, I walked away instead of being like they were awesome. I was like, I kind of feel bad for how inward they face and how sad that must be. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a strange direction that the cultures, you know, provoked or pushed pushed their their mm-hmm. psyche or their you know interaction with people. Um, I I feel like something that was really powerful powerful for me is like my first. Um, train ride in Thailand I was on this night train and I met this um, this guy like they everyone wanted to talk to me you know it was like oh really oh hi like just a guy by himself and like I look quite a bit different than they do and like just visually and taller and stuff and yeah. they're all really friendly and this guy who was like a 20 year old college student um, his name was Mook he played in a rock band uh, I don't smoke cigarettes but I smoked like three cigarettes with him on the train and it was awesome because you know I could like hang out the doors in the middle of the night in Thailand through this, going through this jungle and like this is the craziest train ride I've ever been on and it's like a sleeper train so I'm on like the top bunk and um and so we talked to like one in the morning and he was like you know what Thailand is a king and you aren't allowed to talk about the king so we had to like whisper when we talked about the king and he would be like rest in peace and oh yeah exactly exactly um but you know he was like the youth you know don't necessarily support a monarch you know, or the way that the government is basically run by a military and the country is like sort of subjugated to tourism and you know catered towards this you know it's like they they want a lot more than that they think and know that there could be a lot more than that wow. and that's a largely influenced by what they're seeing on their smartphones you know they're seeing like well I, they, I, they want to have their own identity and their own you know influence of the world on the world be part of the world and no and don't be like you know a stomping ground for all these travelers to come just like chill on a beach and you know a lot of travelers in Thailand aren't necessarily like the nicest people because they're just on vacation for a couple weeks and they aren't going to be like always super respectful I've heard there's a lot of d-bag Australians that come up there (laughs) yeah and it depends on where you go I mean in some places is you know you meet really cool travelers in some place some places you meet really not cool travelers um and I met another kid in Vietnam who was like you know i I wish that v- things were different in Vietnam. And they were like these young guys, like in their early 20s, and they wanted to talk about politics. And I don't know whether that's just normal, but like I was pretty surprised. And, yeah. and you know, they were talking about wanting to go to school and wanting to, like, you know, change the way it is, you know, change the standard, which people are talking about here. People have been talking about that a lot this past year, obviously. Yeah. And, with the obviously with the election and stuff and it changed it in an interesting way here let me tell you it changed you know surprised some of us and yeah. you know maybe a, a bunch of people were pretty happy with it probably but yeah. um yeah i mean I, that's the nature of change though is someone's not going to be happy and someone will be happy mm-hmm. and and that's one thing that i guess also is that if there's one thing you can guarantee is that there will be change. Like there's always change. There's a million small countries all in that area, like uh, that all have their own little customs and ways and everything. But was there like a or what was the prevailing kind of like? We're from the West. West people, Westerners think like this. What was the kind of the prevailing like? We're from the East. This is how we think. <laughs> well, they're changing. It's changing, and, and that's like one of the biggest. It's things. becoming more it's, Western. It's be, it is. It's becoming more Western. Like the young people want to. <laughs> they want to be like the movies and like yeah so on, on Borneo I stayed with a couch surfer and um you know he had he, he had like a family and stuff and um like a tv and they were they had youtube and stuff and he was like so what's it like in America I'm like oh you know it's it's not 
what you see on movies. Everyone just goes to work and does stuff. And he's like, yeah, but do you have house parties? I'm like, oh, yeah, I've had a house party for sure. He's like, oh, you get drunk at your house parties. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you invite your friends over? I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you hook up with chicks? I'm like, maybe, you know, that happens sometimes. And he's like, wow. He's like, I've never had a house party. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we go to the bar if we're going to drink or go to karaoke. And and I'm... Every, everywhere is into karaoke, by the way. They love karaoke. You're like, have you considered having a house party, <laughs> sir? And, and he's like, he's like, maybe my wife goes out of town and we have a house party. And I'm like, whatever you want to do, man. I'm just here to, you know, see what you want to do. And like, oh, weird, man. And, what a strange thing. But then he was, he was also asking some crazy stuff. He's like, oh, do you ever burn the house, like catch the house on fire? I'm like, no. And he's like, I saw it in a movie. And, and you know, he was so he was taking these ideas that he had seen in movies and asking me. And I've you know, as much as it sounds ridiculous, like he was serious about some of it and um, he spoke English fairly well. And well, it's like it's like I think of all of the Far East being into karate. OK, right. I, I saw zero martial arts throughout the entirety of Japan. So it's yeah. like I mean, it's there, I'm sure. But it wasn't like that's the th- we think of ninjas and Godzilla. Godzilla was everywhere, by the way. But like we think of ninjas and Godzilla and it's like it wasn't there. Like So right, right, right. I get it that that's what their perception of us is. is like Yeah. Yeah. Muscle dudes with machine guns. And- shooting stuff 20 years ago now it's house parties and uh and mercedes or whatever yeah yeah and and you know i think people think of americans as like loud and not thoughtful and and that's sort of what our media you know people think of us as what our media has portrayed us as but did they did they think of it as americans or westerners because my experience like no one knew when we were in japan like where we were from they couldn't like pick it out they couldn't pick out because we don't speak the same language and they didn't speak a ton of english okay they like one guy i cheered for at a we were at a race and i cheered for a german guy yeah german guy and the guy was like oh germans and we were like, no, uh, USA. And he was like, what? USA? It was like a, it was the, they all white people from the West look look and sound alike to them, which was yeah. f- fantastic. I, I loved having that turned back on me. I think that's. I, I think, I think that's how it is definitely for people that don't speak the language or if you don't talk to them for yeah. long enough for them to figure out who you are. Sure. Um, but I, so when I was in Borneo, I stayed with this, um, at a longhouse. It was an Iban longhouse, which is the indigenous people from Borneo. They've lived there for whatever thousands of years. And, cool. And so they had their, they still had a traditional longhouse and it's actually getting like very hard to find that sort of thing. But, um, I got really lucky cause this, um, this group of people there from this company called Life Mosaic was, um, at the longhouse and their whole job is sort of, um, basically the opposite of, um, of what the religious, um, what is it called when you travel? Um, religious travelers. Like proselytizers or? Mm, you know, when you like. Missionaries? Go, missionaries. It's yeah, the opposite yeah. of a missionary. Their job is to support the local culture, um, try to um, help the local people find an identity and, you know, improve the local um, traditions and cultures of the indigenous people, including language and things like that, which are fading and you know, there's languages that are dying, which, you know, is, you know, in some ways is sad because that's going to be like, um, I just saw that movie, uh, Arrival. Oh, it was good. I thought oh, it was good. I enjoyed I it. I want to see it. Yeah. And this concept of language, um, being the way you speak and write influences the way you think and view the world, mm-hmm. which, um, is already a linguistic concept. Um, but you know, they bring it up in this movie and, um, if you think about these languages that are dying, these pers- perspectives and ways to think about the world are also dying. It's getting steamrolled by... Right, it's getting steamrolled by the larger, more dominant ones, which are, you know, they've built up so much momentum. It's inevitable. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. But, you know, it's in some ways, being able to see some of them, it's an experience that I guess I wanted to have. And that was something I was looking for, you know, is to see kind of indigenous people or 
and see how they were living. Like I was saying earlier, so I was there for a week. Um, I was only going to stay like two days. I ended up staying like seven days. And cool. that's one of the great things about traveling with no time frame and, and on a cheap, low budget where you aren't necessarily worried about how much money you were spending or had because it was, it was really cheap. And um, yeah, so this woman from Life Mosaic, who is an Indonesian woman, but she was there working with this um, indigenous tribe, um, afterwards has said, like, you changed the way I viewed Americans. Like, I thought Americans is one way, but you were different than how I, you know. Oh, interesting. So she, so they do have a perception of Americans specifically. And I, I would say probably largely influenced by our massive media control. I mean, they, everyone there knows about like our presidential elections. I was like, you guys know more about like American politics than probably some Americans do because you're like, into American media and American stuff. And I went to an election night party with a bunch of British people <laughs> and they like, except for the electoral college, which I had no, I couldn't understand at all. Like I can't either, but, um, all of them knew more about what was going on than, than I did for sure. And at some point I had to be like, listen guys, I don't know. Like you guys know more than I do. And I'm yeah. embarrassed to be here because I'm just here to like hang out and socialize. And like, this is a, a moment in time. You guys actually know what's going on and boy, shame on me. Yeah. 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 Um, tell me about something that went wrong for you while you were there. Um, you mean like missing buses or like, okay, here, here, there's a story that I feel like I should tell you. It's yeah. kind of, it's kind of, I'll, I'll keep it like relatively short. Um, <laughs> so I was coming over the border into this area called West, yeah, West Kalimantan, which is a section of Borneo in the Indonesian side. Borneo's okay. Borneo's like one of the, I think, the third largest island, other than not including Australia, um, in the world. Oh, it's a really massive island. It's like you know hundreds of miles across, wow. um, and uh, it's you know covered by jungle, um, lots of oil palm plantations. Um, part of it's Malaysia, part of it's Indonesia, and there's this little country called Brunei, which is in the, the Sultan side. of Brunei, is yeah, what I've heard yeah. before. Um, and so I, I was really interested in trying to. Um, see or um, be around more indigenous Iban people, which is the indigenous people, um, one of the indigenous groups on um, Borneo. And so I was traveling from the Malaysian side, which is more touristy and more built up, mm -hmm. to the Indonesian side, which is like, I, I couldn't find anyone that had been there. I was talking to all these people in on the Malaysian side. I was like, hey, have you been to you know, Kalimantan before or the, you know, the Indonesian side and everyone's like, no, but like all the other travelers were like, no, no, but you should totally go. It's going to be really crazy. And it was like the craziest two weeks of my whole trip probably. Um, so coming over the border, there was this really strange guy on the bus and he kept looking at me and like laughing. And, you know, he was kind of like creepy, like older, bald, r weird tattoos and, um, didn't really speak any English, but he, he showed me his passport and it was like, I don't know whether he wanted to show me his name or where he was from. So I showed him my passport, which maybe wasn't a good idea in hindsight. But um, we get to the border and he goes, you know, like, come with me, come with me. And I'm like, you know, there's a whole bunch of people there and we're outside. So we're, I'm walking with this him. This is a towards, horror movie to me. I'm like, I'm walking, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm walking with him to, towards the border and, um, and we get to the border and he goes, like, he's somehow conveys that he knows the guy. And so he's like, I'd give him my passport and he gives it to the border guy and the guy talks to him. I don't talk to the border guy at all. Normally you have to pay like 30 or 40 bucks to get a visa to go into um, Indonesia. Um, Malaysia, you don't have to pay. Um, you know, every country's a little different. Yeah, sure. Ooh. And so I get a pass, a visa exempt stamp and I don't pay anything. So it means I don't need a visa, which I'm like, okay, that's kind of odd, whatever. And so I come back and 
I'm like, I go to the, I was, you kind of always talk in broken English um, unless the person speaks English well, because when you use the full sentence, it kind of yeah. can get confusing. So, I gotcha. you know, so I'm like, noun verb. You know, yeah. So I'm like bus station, bus station, you know, I'm, I go to Sinkawang and, um, and he's like, oh no, no bus, no bus, Sinkawang tomorrow. I'm like, oh crap. So I have to stay in this border town. Um, and you know, border towns in general, even border towns in America on the Mexican side can be somewhat, um, yeah, Nogales. I've yeah. Been, that's, uh, done that, been there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll go to a hotel or something. And, and he's like, oh no, come with me, come with me. So I, his friend drives up in like a decent looking like Ford Explorer with like blacked out windows and his friend's young and speaks English. Like not, yeah, he's like probably in his thirties and his friend's like, Hey, what's up brother? He's like, hop in dude. I'll take you like wherever you need to go. I'm like, all right, cool. Like you seem pretty normal. And, um, so I hop in and then we drive past the border guy and, uh, like the other check where they check my visa and make sure I had it stamped. And they're, and they're like, they know the guy, you know? And so they know like all the border guys and the border was sketchy in itself. It was like getting remodeled or built. Maybe it was just getting built for the first time for that matter. Cause it's kind of in the jungle and there's like these, you know, just, just to help you with some visuals, you know, like I'm walking on like these muddy boards over this like muddy pit and there's all these guys sitting around like without their shirts, like smoking. And I'm the only white person there. And probably one of the only people that speak English and I don't speak any of their languages. And um, so I like have my big backpack and I'm like, you know, I've been, this is towards the end of my trip. This is probably like, I've been traveling for five months. So I was like, all right, you know, I've, I've seen some stuff. I, I can handle myself. Um, and so I go with this are guy. Are your spidey senses tingling this whole time? My, my spidey senses are tingling. I'm like, oh man, like stay, like stay on top of this. Like, you know, I was just, was, yeah, being very aware. Um, so we go back to this like shop and he's like, Hey, this is my brother's shop. And it ends up that he's like a border like runner. And so he has like all these passports of Indonesian passports that, uh, he's like, um, getting his people in so they can work. Cause Malaysia has a better economy right now in mm-hmm. that area. And, um, so it's basically like completely illegal, yeah. um, but he knows all the border guys. And so we go and there's like checkpoints on the road here and there. And so we drive past the checkpoint and he rolls it down. And he's like, talks to the guy and then drives off and, um, and so it, it gets like really uncomfortable because he's like, do you want to stay at a hotel or do you want to stay here? And I was like, oh, well, how much? And he's like, well, here's like whatever, you know, $2 or you can stay at the hotel for $10. And I'm like, oh, yeah, $2. Sure. No problem. I'll stay in like a, a grimy room for you know, really cheap. And it seemed OK at the time. You know, it was like, you know, I, I met his family like I had dinner with him and like I had just met this guy. Like I just jumped in his car and he was like pretty nice. But um like in, I, I saw his room and like literally him and his wife and his four kids lived in like a single room inside this like really grungy, like just wood building. What did you eat? Um, like rice and fish. Cool. Yeah. And like his wife had made it or something. And, um, and you know, like in his room, all he had was a guitar, which we played and like this big dagger, like on the wall, that was it. And like a pile of clothes and like a mattress on the ground. And I was like, wow, this is some like, you know. Oh, it was crazy. And it's sad, uh, sort of, yeah. And yeah, sad, but kind of unnerving a little bit. And and then he has this nice car and it was kind of weird. And um and so he's like, Oh, do you want to go to, you know, the strip club? And I was like, No, I mean, I don't really need to go to the strip club. Um, I'm what do you normally do? You know, I like I'll do whatever and I didn't really plan to stay there, so I was kinda like, What do I do tonight? Um Yeah, so so he's like, Well, let's go get coffee. I'm like, All right, so he picks up the guy again, the creepy bald guy that with the tattoos who's like his buddy um and he gets in the car and then he picks up this woman who's like this young thin kind of like sexy looking asian woman and and he's like oh do you want to sleep with her and i was like oh no it's okay and so he probably asked me like eight times if i wanted to sleep with her like 
hounding me on that. And so I think basically they wanted me to pay money to sleep with her. And so he was probably going to get some of that money or something. Yeah. Um, but he went for, and it had gotten dark by now and it was like raining. Do you have your bag on you or do you leave it at his I house? Left, I left my bag in my room, which had a lock on it, but it was his lock. And so, I, I mean, I had my, and he's like, oh, do you have your, do you have, you didn't leave anything in the room? I'm like, no, just clothes. And he's like, okay. Um, he's like, you have your passport and stuff? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then I started thinking like, maybe someone's like going through my stuff or maybe he wants my passport and he's going to like rob me because he's a passport runner and a U.S. passport. And he knows I'm from the U.S. because his friend saw my passport. And so I'm kind of like, oh shit, like, what do I do? You know, um, and, and so he's driving to this coffee place and he drives through a town and it's been like a 10 minute drive down this windy road in the jungle and it's dark and raining. And there's these, you know, three of them in the car and they're all talking. I don't understand anything they're saying. And he keeps asking me if I want to sleep with this woman. I keep saying, no, no, just coffee. It's okay. And, uh, and so I'm like, hey, look, like how much farther is it to the to the coffee? And he's like, oh, sorry, it's it's a good one. You know, it's a couple. It's like the next town. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm kind of tired. I've been traveling all day. I'm gonna wake up early and travel tomorrow. And, yeah. and he's like, okay, okay, yeah, we'll we'll be there soon. And and then this woman in the back starts crying, and then he yells at her. He's like, you know, he's like, shut up, shut up. And and then they're kind of laughing again. And and I was just like, what the heck is going on here? And so I'm like, dude, like I don't feel comfortable with this. And then. Right as I said that, he pulls into this coffee place and he's like, it's okay. You know, he's like, we're here. And so we sit down and he buys her coffee and then he, and he's like, do you want anything? And I'm just like, I'm just going to drink my water actually. Like, I'm good. I don't even want to drink coffee because I felt like, you know, they're going to like drug me or something's going to happen. You know, you hear about these weird things. Yeah. You're just on your. And so also my mind is like anything that could happen might happen. So I'm just like on guard. I'm just like drinking my water bottle and like, yeah, it's all good. You know, I'm just hanging out, like trying to keep it cool or whatever. Um, and the, and the creepy bald guy just kind of is smiling the whole time. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. he does this like weird kind of like, he looked like a star Wars character. Like he would laugh and like, ah, ja, 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 you know, <laughs> I don't know, something crazy like that. Yeah. And, and yeah. So then he's like, all right, well, let's go back. And so we're driving back. And I'm like, okay, thank God. Like I paid attention the whole way. You know, I was kind of like, there was only like one turn that we took and we're really close. And he takes a left-hand turn up a gravel road. The middle is pitch black. You start peeing your pants. And I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> no, I seriously thought, like, this guy's going to probably, like, take me somewhere and knock me out and take all my shit and leave me on the side of the road. And I'm not going to have a passport or money or a phone. And what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to be super... Do you keep your phone in your pocket this whole time to, like... Yeah, actually, I think I had my phone and he had, he had helped me get my phone set up so I had an Indonesian line because yeah. um, it's like different when you get over the border um, so I think I had messaged somebody that I had met in the last town and I was like hey I'm kind of in an uncomfortable situation so I just want you to know where I am like I literally was like this is where I'm at right now and um, so we're driving down this gravel road and I was like whoa why do we take this road um, like the place we were staying at is just around the corner I know we aren't far um, and he's like oh no it's okay it's okay and I'm, he's like it meets a, it comes back around I'm like no like just take me home and and uh yeah, like I was, I think I was probably like shaking, like my heart was pounding and I like, I had, I grabbed my hand on the, on the door, like in case I had to like yeah, jump, jump and roll. I mean, he's not going fast, it's gravel, but, and it's pitch black and it's raining and uh, she's like, she started crying again and stuff. And I'm like, what, what is going on? I'm like, dude, seriously, like, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm like, I dropped, you know, I dropped some language. I was like, pull the f car over. I need to go home right now um, or whatever, like turn around. And he's like, it's fine, it's fine. And I, I shift the car into neutral because I was sitting shotgun. I shift the car into neutral. I'm like, no, dude, I'm not joking. Like, 
take me back right now. And he's like, okay. Like, and he, and he turned off and took me back. And that was the most I've ever had to like, feel like I had to assert myself. And also the closest I felt like, you know, really vulnerable. You know, I was in this car with this, these two guys and this woman and one of the guys spoke some English and like in the middle of like a rainy rainforest in Borneo, which is kind of like, I mean, the border town for that matter, you know, it's pretty far and it's not next to any big towns. It was just like this little hole in the wall town. And, and so he drove me back and he was like, Hey, you sure you don't want to come? Like you can, I'm going to go off with my buddies. I'm like, no, I'm going to go to bed. And I was freaked out, dude. Yeah. I was, I was scared. I was scared. Like pretty, (laughs) uh, but you know, I calmed down. I just sat there in the bed and was like, Wusa and like read it for a while and woke up in the morning and left and it was fine. Did you sneak out without saying anything? You well, just, like, he said wanna... he had to, he said that he had to do something. He was like, I have to wake up at four in the morning and do a border run. And I was like, he's like, but I'm going to come back. I'll give you a ride to the bus station. Cause it was like whatever, a mile or two away. And I woke up and he wasn't there and he said the bus left at seven. So I like just walked out to the street and this, this guy at like a, a store was, I mean, they don't see western travelers there at all like yeah. hardly ever as far as i could tell i mean i didn't see a single western person the whole time i was in Kalimantan for two weeks and yeah and this guy was like hey i'm like hey do you know how far the bus is and he's like i give you a ride i give you a ride <laughs> not again but, but it was it was daylight so i felt much safer and what was the what was the border town called do you remember? um were you coming I, from brunei is what you said no i was i was coming from kuching um, I I'm just look looking it at it doesn't matter man I'm just looking at the um, I'm just looking at the map on Google Maps here actually I did I did bring my I did bring my journal so I have all my like places that I was at I, I, I wrote a journal while I was traveling I filled a whole entire journal and yeah, it was really great but uh, that's so awesome to be able to go back and look at that sometime yeah yeah I, I read it like a couple like a couple weeks ago I looked at it I was like oh yeah like you definitely when you read something all of the memories like flood back like the visuals and the people and you know, like you know, like you can think about it and you can talk about it, but it's really hard to remember some of those details unless you. Did you journal every night? Mm, no, there'd be times where I did it like once a, once a week, and there'd be times where I did it every night. So, it definitely, when I was on my own, I tried harder to do it more frequently. And did your traveling satisfy that itch, or only intensify it? Uh, it's it satisfied it to an extent, but it you know like. Okay, when I left to travel, I wanted to go to India. I was like, I'm going to go to Thailand and maybe like Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and then maybe India. But um, I did really want to do some meditation or spend some time around like Buddhist monks because that was something I had been interested in. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I also knew that I wanted to spend some time maybe doing like working at a farm, like an or well, like the farm that I was working at was called Organic. Um, and so I was like looking at woofing and work away, help X kind of stuff, but. I kind of figured out everything word of mouth. Like I was at a hostel and I met this guy and he was telling me about this awesome farm that he was at in Cambodia. And, and so I messaged, messaged the guy on Facebook and the guy hit, replied and I was there for three weeks, you know, with a, a group of other travel travelers. And that was really a really awesome experience. Lots of, lots of fun staying, you know, on this farm in Cambodia. And, mm-hmm. and then I also knew I wanted to, so with the meditation stuff, I was, I did a yoga class in a, in a place and, or in, um, Siem Reap, which is a large-ish town in Cambodia, and uh, the yoga instructor was like this really crazy kind of Irish slash South African guy who had um, uh, been doing yoga and meditation since he was like a teenager, and he was like in his fifties now, and he had these crazy stories about living in Ireland and working with this like 
um, meditation center that ended up becoming a cult and like he had to escape on like a motorcycle and this woman was like trying to drain his energy and like all this crazy stuff um, and but he was like the most legit authentic meditation I've ever done is called Vipassana meditation and there's mm-hmm. Vipassana centers all around the world and so I was like oh I'll look into it and it's like a 10 day silent meditation and I did, so I did that in Malaysia oh wow yeah and so I was yeah that was really <laughs> crazy experience too um, so yeah so I did the farm and then I uh, did the meditation in Malaysia and then from there I knew I wanted to like be in less cities and less touristy areas so that's why I ended up going to Borneo and so kind of all these things um, sort of fell into place. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you look back at the time timeline and how it all worked out and you're like, wow, that couldn't have been, you know, any more perfect in how it all worked out. And so I feel I, I, I feel like I got in a really good place of kind of, I guess, I guess, being in tune with what I was wanting out of my trip and my experience and um being really aware of myself and being able to find that. And so when it ended, I was like ready for it to end and to come back. Um, and I still want to go to India. So, and I, and I also want to go back to Borneo because the longhouse was a really amazing experience. I got some tattoos there and oh, cool. I uh, see that. That's cool. I spent some time in, in the, like in the jungle with uh, this group life mosaic that was working with the youth yeah. about, you know, the importance of their culture and their, it's sort of like summer camp, but not. And, um, and all these kids are amazing. These kids like go into the jungle and bring back like vegetables and fish. And then we cook it and we ate it at night. And that was like, they live, um, like off the jungle. They don't have like, you know, jobs (laughs) at all. I mean, it's, it's not a consumer. They don't live in, I mean, there is an influence of that and it's changing and like everything is, but they don't live as in like wanting to go to the bar or wanting to like go to their friend's house and play video games. Like, and, and they were the happiest people I've ever seen probably. Like they were laughing. We would sit around in circles in the longhouse drinking this beer. It's called Tuak. Um, it's, they also called it tree beer. Um, it's like a rice beer. I think that's, um, made with like the bark of a tree and they had like these big buckets of it. And it's kind of like a white creamy color and they just filter it right there through this like piece of cloth. And yeah. So, I mean, that was, maybe a lot of information kind of all over the place, but you know, it was one of those experiences where it's like, this is really amazing. I had a really good connection with some of the other, like the younger guys there that were like in their late twenties, early thirties. And they were like, come back, you know, help us learn English. Um, cause they didn't really speak any English. And so I think, and they're like, you could come and stay for a month or something. So, you know, like I almost can't, you know, is it worth it though to do that border experience again? I think I'd go through a different border. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe find the guy again and bring him like 50 bucks or something <laughs> like US dollars that would like change his life or something maybe, you know, so smart. But um, yeah, well, OK, so I ended my I ended my trip in Kota Kinabalu, which is a town in um, Malaysia. Um, direct flight back to Seattle from Kota <laughs> Kinabalu. Direct flight. No, I had, I had to go to Shanghai, but it was just a short layover, uh, <laughs> which is kind of kind of cool that I was in China. Sure. Um, and uh I I met this woman who has been traveling for like a year and a half or two years or something. And uh, she was saying that she had left to go home for a wedding or something and ended up staying home for a year and then started her travels again from the city she had left left off. So I think that's kind of cool. I might start from where I left off, work my way back to the longhouse and then work my way through Indonesia, maybe into India that way. So we could keep going for hours, I'm sure. (laughs) 
I didn't even ask you about like if they do drugs there, if they have like Coca-Cola, any of that stuff. So much Coca-Cola. <laughs> thanks for coming, dude. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to So You're in Seattle with Gregor. Follow him on Twitter at HeyGregor. Find more episodes online at SoYou'reInSeattle.com. So You're in Seattle is a burrito butt production. Yeah, you're a good dog, Chowder. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.